Hello, sword people, and welcome to the show. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Alina Boyden, author of the excellent fantasy novel featuring, among other things, dragons used like fighter planes called Stealing Thunder. Um, and she is also a Kunstesfekten um, exponent in Madison. So without further ado, uh, Alina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's nice to hear from you. So, Alina, why don't we just start with whereabouts in the world are you? I just told everyone you're in Madison. Is that still true? Yes, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin currently. Um, and uh, for the foreseeable future, thanks to the COVID situation in the US. Okay. And what got you started with swords and historical martial arts? You know, I got started with swords um, from quite a young age. I think my first sort of interest in swords was when I was a very young child. And I think it was like seeing Return of the Jedi and lightsabers mm. because they were big, glowy, cool things. You um, and me both. And my dad, my dad, like uh, he, he was a woodworker. And so he turned lightsabers on a lathe for us to play with. I remember that. Ah, um, that that's parenting jam, that is. Yeah, right. And and then from there, it had always been an interest, but I didn't get a chance to pursue it until I moved to California when I was um, 12. And at that time, there was a local European sport fencing club that I joined. Um, so I learned foil and then kind of specialized in epee. That was my go-to weapon because it had no rules. So I thought it was more quote unquote realistic. And even as a, as a child, I was like, I needed that. And then pretty quickly, I think I was 13 or 14 when I switched to Kendo, um, because I guess because I'd read Musashi by Eiji Yoshikawa at that time, um, mm -hmm. and because I liked slashing at things. I don't know. It just seemed really cool to me. Um, and being on the West Coast, that was available. So I switched to Kendo and did Kendo for quite a while, um, trained in various other martial arts, and then... Around the time I was in undergraduate in college, uh, I got on Sword Forum back when that was a thing. I remember and, Sword Forum. Right, yeah. yeah, people have different memories of Sword Forum. Um, so you know, I got on Sword Forum when that was a thing and met um, just a, a wide variety of other people in the HEMA scene. Um, and at that time, I became interested in in HEMA, but I was leaning more in the direction of the military saber, the single stick sort of thing, mm -hmm. because those sources were readily accessible. I didn't speak German. We didn't have really good translations at that time. Everybody had like the medieval combat. I think it was called Talhofer manuscript with no text. And like you looked at the pictures and I don't know, played in a parking lot or something. When I came- Or, or stitched yourself into skin tight black leather outfits. Yes. Yeah. That's the other option. You made dueling shields. I don't know. Um, you, you, you put a, a rock in a, in a scarf and whacked people with it. Um, so I, uh, I saw that and I thought it was cool and interesting, but it was one of those things where it wasn't readily accessible. And my, my life sort of also, I, I had kind of other interests, I guess. So I, I was interested in HEMA for sure. I was also interested in, um, you know, Ottoman Turkish, Indo-Persian weapons. Um, and yeah, in that's from reading your book. Yeah, and in archery. And so, like, I actually moved more into archery for a while and was doing um, various different disciplines of traditional archery uh, for years. Um, right. I trained in Kudo. Uh, well, I, I trained in Kudo. 
<clears throat> I, I used uh, Tebuga's manuscript on um, on archery from um, from medieval Turkey, and I uh, then started doing um, traditional European archery. Um, and it's hard to say what traditional is like. Am I doing warbow archery? No, I was never doing warbow archery. But I think, um, yeah, looking at how archery developed and what techniques existed in archery prior to the invention of uh, the bow sight and uh, modern compound bows and things. And um, I trained a lot in that, became women's world longbow champion in like 2014 for a hot second. Really? Yeah, in the IFA. I, I, I should have I put that in your intro. Well, you know, it's like, it's one of those things where I, um, I, I got the IFAA indoor world title in like March of 2014 or something like that, I think. And then by, and I set a world record, actually, I was really proud of myself and it was immediately broken by some bitch in Estonia. Um, so (laughs) I think it lasted like two weeks and it was such a short period of time that it didn't even officially go into the record books. Like at the time it was like world record for that division for that particular, um, uh, organizing body, which is not the same organizing body that does the Olympics, um, cause it's field archery, but, um, but yeah, so I, I did archery competitively and then, um, grad school kind of got rid of that. And then I was like, Hmm, I miss swords. I should do HEMA again. And this must've been 2015 or 2016. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, was like, I wonder if there's any HEMA groups in Madison, Wisconsin, and the first thing I found was Madison Meyer Freifechter Guild. And I was like, oh, cool. They do have one. So I went there and um, trained with them for a while. And mm-hmm. I was just kind of floored because I was like, faders? You you don't use like a like a shinai with like some stick tied to it anymore. Like, <laughs> what's going on? What have you guys yeah. done here? Um, you know, so I missed a lot of the period where it became mainstream. Um, and I came back to this thing where they actually had equipment for sale. And I was just bewildered. Wow. I was baffled. Yeah. I was like, what? Because I'd gone literally, I think, from like the, um, the when Hacka, right? When mm-hmm. it was called, when Arma was Hacka. And Hacka had the best simulator available is when you follow their plans to make a foam buffer with a screw stuck in a, do you remember like where it was a PVC pipe with a dowel in it and like a, a yeah. screw at we, the end to like weight it down? We never used them. We were always using steel because we, mm-hmm. we had access to steel swords up to a small point. Even in the nineties, we were using steel. Um, I mean, because, good for you. you know, yeah, we were, we were lucky, but yes, I vividly remember those days. And I mean, I never made one because I thought it seemed ridiculous, but um, I, uh, I was like, well, why don't you just use wood at that point? It seems like it makes cool. more sense. Yeah, I guess they really needed to hit each other or something, but, um, but yeah, so I, I came from, from that to modern, you know, factory made faders that are widely available for reasonable prices. Um, so I was, I was really baffled. I thought it was great. And, um, yeah, so I trained with Madison Meyer Factory Guild for a while and, um, Eric Maines, who I was training with at the time, he kind of stepped down. I think he was stressed out and busy working. And so there was really not um, not a sort of organized leadership at that time for a short period because Chris, um, at the time, I think he was really busy with his, his military obligations. And so then I drifted over to some other groups in Madison and um, eventually found my way over to um, Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, where James Riley teaches. And I worked with James for quite a while. Uh, and then, you know, I, I uh, saw Jess Finley on Facebook um, and was like, huh, she's doing, she has like weekend intensives or something with a sword cottage. I was like, oh, all right. 
So I said, Hey, can I do a weekend intensive with you? And she's like, sure. And we didn't know each other at all. And so, um, she said, does November sound good? I'm like, November is fine. And, uh, months go by November rolls around and this is November of last year, actually. And, um, I go down there to train with her for a weekend and, um, it's like four days of like four hours a day of fencing. Um, and I was not fit and I was like, Oh my God, she's killing me. All the <laughs> walking, all fit. the, she's, so, she's so fit. And then she tells you all about how like she, you know, um, all about her health, uh, issues that she's had and how she had to teach herself to walk again. And you're looking at yourself and you're just like, what is your excuse? What is your excuse? Right. Like, get yeah. moving, like do something. So um, she's a very inspirational human being. And, um, but what I found was when I trained with her for, for that period, I thought, wow, I learned so much in such a short time. It really helped me to kind of inculcate an understanding of what the art I felt like was aiming to do. And we meshed so well. I mean, we geeked out hardcore because she, um, I got there and she said, you know, do you know anything about falconry? And I was like, <laughs> I used to train birds of prey for a living and I'm obsessed with them. And, okay. and my whole You're life, like, pass about that in a minute. I'll make a note. Yeah. Like, like my whole life being a fighter pilot was my dream as a kid. And I got kicked out of air force ROTC for being trans back in 2002. So, um, that kind of didn't pan out. But, um, later a U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel kind of took pity on me and gave me, um, the entire training that the U S air force gives to new fighter pilots, um, through flight sims over the oh course God. of like six months training me, like, and he, he's like, I just have one rule. Well, he was like, I was playing a lot of flight sims, um, after my older brother's suicide, I think is like a coping mechanism. And like, he was sick of flying in our virtual fighter squad with people that didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> so he was like, well, if you're going to fly, like I'll train you, then you have to train everybody else. That's the rule. And you have to take it seriously, but I'll do it. And I was like, great. And so he trained me in that art. And at the same time I was training birds of prey for a living. And so oh, wow. one of the things I saw was, you know, he had gone through, explained how fighter piloting works, what the martial art of fighter piloting is, because it's mm -hmm. absolutely a systematized martial art. It's the only yeah, sure. surviving lethal dueling art in the world that still is right. used for its intended purpose. And, um, Lo and behold, I was watching a falcon go after a duck. And I was like, holy shit, that falcon just made a good turn circle entry into the lag window. Executed a clean talon shot, low aspect. Oh, that's so good. Would, it was would you exactly like to go back and explain those terms. <laughs> so what I you know, so like, pilot listeners. So like what I mean is that that like if if you imagine, and it's so much easier to talk about these things with visual references, but if you imagine that you're diving after an opponent, right? Uh, another airplane or a duck, if you're a hungry falcon. Um, if you dive straight at it, you have like a very, you have a chance of hitting it, but that chance is in a split second. You have that one moment to hit it, right? And if you miss, you miss and that's the end of it. Whereas if you dive slightly behind it and pull up into it, you have several seconds of a very easy low aspect that is like, you don't have that much deviation in your angles and your flight paths from one another. And right. therefore you have this long, easy period of time in which to land your hit. Um, and so by diving behind it and pulling up into it, the Falcon has the opportunity to hit the duck and also to course correct if the duck decides to make a maneuver against it. And so that's what they train fighter pilots to do in the U S air force. And when I saw a Falcon just do that, I was like, mm. wait a second, 
it it does it did the like you would think like like and the reason it was so striking you might think well of course a falcon knows what it's doing that's how they live right which makes sense but if you took any new person put them in like a flight sim and told them to dive on an enemy airplane they would point straight at it because they want to go after that aircraft for the falcon to know uh uh-uh, i'm going to point behind it I'm going to, which is called lagging out. It's a la- the lag window, the, the space behind the duck, right? Um, and then a turn circle entry is you're, you're making a turn, whether that turn is vertical or horizontal, doesn't much matter, or somewhere in between. And, uh, okay. yeah. and so it's making this, this turn into the duck as the duck itself is turning um, by coming in behind it so that it aligns their flight paths for the longest period of time to get a clean kill. Well, most people don't know to do that. Most people who would go and try that wouldn't do it that way. And most people would never really learn to do it that way. I don't, I mean, I, I never is kind of a strong word, but they would, um, it's certainly not something that's intuitive and it's actually not something that necessarily um, is, is obvious or even that something you would learn from trial and error because, because, you know, even if you're doing it in a flight sim, you may just get real good at taking that really difficult shot and missing a bunch of times, but hitting enough times that you're successful. Um, But like the margins for birds hunting are much stronger than that. Um, If they miss, they die essentially because they go hungry, right? If they miss enough. So the fact that the bird was able to do something that, that a human being wouldn't think to do without training blew my mind. I was like, that's crazy. And then I watched a couple of eagles chasing a seagull to exhaustion and killing it, a couple of bald eagles. And they were taking turns trading off exactly the way that fighter pilots are trained to do it. Like, I'm 100% exactly the way. One would go high and linger while the other chased the seagull. And then at the moment the seagull made a turn that was too sharp for the eagle that was following it to manage, it would go up high and the other one would dive down and make a turn circle entry to continue chasing it. And it was just like, it was so perfectly coordinated. It was unbelievable. It was better than most people do. Um, And again, it's something that humans require a ton of training to figure out. And these eagles were just doing it. And so I was just like obsessed with that. And so then when Jess, like I go over for this weekend intensive and she's like, you know anything about falconry? And I was like, tell me more. And (laughs) like, she has this, I mean, I'm sure that that she's, she's kind of talked about it at length. And most people have, 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 who are familiar with her have heard of this idea that, that, these terms that are used in in the German longsword tradition and the German martial arts tradition um, are terms that are also used in hunting and specifically in falconry. Right. And for me, it was like a light switch just went off because I'd for a long time thought there's a huge overlap between fighter piloting and fencing. There's a, just a huge overlap. Yeah. And yeah. and then when she said that, it just like it just flicked a switch in my brain, and I was like, oh, I get it. Okay. So this is a hunting falcon. It has nothing to do with swords in my brain anymore. It has to do with lift, lift vectors and lag roll displacements. And this is fine. We can do this. And so the two of us, I think, spent like half the night reading this horrible medieval French poem, horribly brilliant medieval French po- poem called the, um, the Alarian, which is basically um, a romantic primer where the guy talks about courtly romance, but he talks about it through the guise of training birds of prey. Um, And so I was just explaining to her what all the terms meant. And I was like, it was the most hilarious poem to me because I've trained birds of prey, but the poem at the beginning says like, 
you know, um, this isn't a popular work because no modern person has the knowledge of or interest in falcons for this to really make sense as a metaphor. And I was like, hey, like, excuse me. (laughs) These people do exist. I have a question, though. Did in in the like the origins of fighter piloting, like 100 Hmm. years ago or so, uh, do you think it's likely that someone who knew about falconry influenced the development of uh, fighter plane tactics? I actually think it's somebody who knew something about horsemanship because okay. all of the fighter pilots uh, in World War One, or not all of them, but a strong number of fighter pilots in World War One, who were quite successful, made their start as cavalry officers, including Richthofen, the Red Baron. Yep. Um, and Jess and I have been talking, she's working on horsemanship now, um, or horsewomanship, I suppose. Anyway, so she's working on horses and on the mounted combat sections of, of Kunstdesfekten that are, that are less widely taught because we don't usually have horses. Um, and interestingly, you're, you're doing the same thing with horses that you do with fighter planes to a degree because the horse doesn't, um, if, you, if you make the horse slow down too much in a corner, it drops its gait and then it becomes less maneuverable. Just like if you go too slow in a plane, you'll fall out of the sky. Um, and you want to keep your speed up so that you're not overtaken. And so there's a sense in which this kind of dogfighting is very similar to the kinds of pads that are ridden by people when they're fighting on horseback. And similarly, you want to aim for a place where you can hit them, but they can't hit you, which tends to be um, in horsemanship from, from what I understand from Jess, it's like the, um, the seven to eight o'clock position, this position that's um, on the left side of the opponent and behind them. Okay, um, I, so, I've, had a, I've had a mounted combat lesson from uh, Jennifer Landles. Mm-hmm. And um, when we did a bit of sparring at the end, you know, both of us on horses, right? Where do you think she was the entire bloody time? Sliced me up. She was on my seven o'clock, slicing mm-hmm. the crap out of me. <laughs> right, and so how do you get somebody off your seven o'clock position? Well... Fighter pilots and birds know how to do that, right? So I think that mounted combat actually, there's a reason that falcons Mm -hmm. were compared to knights, right? Right. Um, Strongly compared to knights in the period, so much so that like the hood of the falcon was considered to be like a knight's helmet. Um, And so the idea that these falcons are knights, well, the combat must have looked very similar to them in some respects because you're familiar with what the birds are doing. You see how they fight where there's only certain ways that birds can, um, can fight against one another. And, um, and there's only certain ways that the horse, the horsemen can fight against one another as well. So like the head on pass, right? You can take something head on to do that is the most dangerous. It opens you up to the most assault from your opponent um, and you see all these talks uh, in, in medieval documents about um, falcons that were killed by a heron. Uh, and the heron, of course, is the, um, a bird that has a very long beak. And so if it makes a head on pass, it can stab like a jousting knight. Well, this, is, this must have looked very much like somebody getting skewered with a lance in a, in a, in a charge to them, you know. Um, right. Whereas the falcon really wants to maneuver to get behind the heron and then hit it from the six o'clock position, which um, low six o'clock, which is the equivalent of the seven or eight o'clock position on horseback. So this connection between what they're doing with their falconry and what they're doing with their horse combat, I think probably would have been very clear to them at the time. And I think then 
the swordsmanship, the, the, the swordsmanship that's on foot, the unarmored swordsmanship has a ton of elements that are derived from that understanding of combat and that understanding of the world. Sure. And that's sort of what I got from my initial four day intensive with Jess. And I came back going, this is fantastic. We should do it again. Let's do it for a month. And she's like, a month is a long time, Alina. And I was like, well, I'm a writer. Let's do a month. And she's like, what about two weeks? I was like, fine, two weeks. So then I went in February and we spent like six hours a day for two weeks training going through the entire system of, of um, KDF. Well, the entire longsword system anyway. We, we didn't quite manage to go through everything. Obviously, we don't have courses. And, and two weeks is not um, enough time. A month would have been better. Um, so, yeah. so we did. But, uh, yeah, just as kids, it has like obligations and things to do. Uh, what? <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Like, they, they, psh, Brian and Scarlett take care of themselves. They're fine. <laughs> they'll just they'll just play video games all day. It's all good. Um, so yeah, so that's what I did before COVID hit. Um, uh, was training with her, and that was fantastic. And I think too, the other reason that I trained with her was because I said she has a real systematic understanding of the art. And one thing that comes from a lot of the Japanese sword training I did because I trained in um, in Kenjutsu as well, um, in Katori Shinto Ryu and in others in, in other styles of Kenjutsu mm-hmm. and. Um, one thing that I noticed in HEMA is that because we're often getting things in jibs and drabs from books, from new interpretations, from something somebody posted on the internet, from like, uh, you know, some piece of somebody else's book, it's, it's a very syncretic system in that, in that regard where, where we're getting information from a lot of different places and we are sort of required to synthesize it ourselves, inside of ourselves. We say, okay... I'm going to systematize it in my way after having gotten all this information from these different places, from that one seminar I went to that one time, from that guy in my town who taught me this, from that, you know, from that tournament I went to and this guy talked about this. Well, the result of that is that it's one of the only martial arts I've ever practiced where when you learn it, you're not learning how to teach it because in, in any other kind of martial art, when you go, you go to a school, you have a teacher who teaches you. And you learn the art, but as you're learning the art, you're also learning how to teach the art, right? You learn what you did first and, and, and what the first lesson was. And, and this goes back to my sword fencing days. The first thing we did was footwork. Then we learned how to hold the sword. Then we learned how to move with the sword. Then we learned uh, the parries, you know, so on and so forth. So, so you have a systematic way of doing it. And when you want to show it to somebody else, you take the same system that you were given and you systematically teach it to them, right? And you produce a new, a new fencer. But in Hema, we don't. We haven't had that historically or traditionally in the last twenty years or so. We've had this kind of, and, oh, and that's not, I mean, not universally. Well, sure, but like, uh, but, but most it, people who train Hema don't train in my school. <laughs> right. Well, so this is what I mean. It's like it's like we have pockets of it. Yeah. But we don't have. Um, I mean, it's not universal, and it's something that I think is becoming more common now than it was in the past. But now we're we're. I think we are getting some people who are doing this. But one of my goals was to address my, ooh, that's cool. We get uh, some kind of ambulance from a foreign country. It's a cool sound. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so I think for me, one of, the, uh, one of the things that I wanted to address was that I had been put in a position where I needed to teach beginners in a HEMA, in a HEMA group uh, in Madison. And I felt so unprepared for it. 
and so at a loss for how to do it. I could teach them basic cuts and things. I could teach them what the post awards were. But I was like, what is the system for teaching this? What is the core of it? What do I want to pass on to people? What do I want to, how do I systematize it in a way that I'm, I'm giving them something on day one that then builds to day two and builds to day three, rather than giving them a bunch of disjointed things that sure, they're all important, but why did I teach them in that order? And why did I teach those particular things? And so the reason that I really went to Jess was I was like, okay, if I'm going to have to teach people things, I want to have a systematic understanding of the whole art first and to know what it is and to know what I, or at least what I think it is and to know what the sort of salient features are so that I can figure out how I would want to build uh, a student up to an understanding of that art in its entirety, rather than saying, well, I have an incomplete understanding. Here are some of the pieces of the incomplete understanding I have, which is not, you know, it's not wrong. I don't want to discourage people from trying to start groups or whatever, but it felt to me um, really incomplete. I felt lost. I really did. So, yeah. Yeah, having that sort of structured system is very helpful. Um, I mean, you, you start with what you've got. And you know, back when, when I was doing this in the mid-90s, we were teaching, oh, I saw this cool trick in this book yesterday. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to show it to you today. And how does it fit with everything else? No idea, right? Yeah. But it was, it, was, it was better than nothing. No, sure, um, it is better than nothing. But like, but it's better not, than it's nothing not is a low bar. A system. But, you know, I actually feel this way if you compare Fiore as a source to the German sources, Fiore mm. presents a complete systematic picture of the entire art of arms as he sees it. So do the right? German sources. Um, it's not, it's not the same. You have uh, most of the German sources appear to me to be, okay, here's a bunch of longsword stuff, which is cool from this place and then we've got some dagger stuff over here and we've got some mounted stuff over there and we've got some wrestling stuff over here and it's not a coherent artistic vision of the whole it's here here are these different sections which you can then from which you can then create your own complete vision perhaps but that's not the way the information is presented i i disagree okay i i think um and, and keep in mind I'm, my knowledge of the system is still limited. I don't know the, the Rosfetten well. I don't know the... Um, so there are, there, there, are, there are holes in my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, just from my training with uh, Jess especially, we just went mm-hmm. through the whole Zettel for the longsword. Just went through right. the Zettel. Sure. And if you go through the Zettel, it is a training program. That's what it is. It's a training program of how to teach somebody longsword. That's, that's what that is. And you start at the beginning and you start, some of it is not clearly laid out. Like the Gemeindelera is not clearly laid out. Um, but if you have some idea of what Gemeindelera might be and you get some of that from Messer, you can bring that in and say, okay, here's the Gemeindelera. You can prep a student that way. And then once the Gemeindelera is taken care of, you break right into the settle and you go through the settle and it's, it's a complete system. And it, and it actually trains them in a way that even alternates which parts of the body are doing work and which parts, which, which things are heavy, training days, as it were, and which are heavy thinking days. Um, And it teaches you a progression of opponents uh, so that you understand how to use each different, um, say, Meisterhau in different contexts and Mm -hmm. against different opponents. And once you go through the entire settle, 
you have gone through the complete longsword system and okay. from start to finish. Oh, yes. Well, what about the dagger and the mounted combat and lance sure. and Well, so lance and horseback. I, I and, like, I, I'll, I'll, yeah, there's definitely is absolutely a systematic look at the longsword. The knightly combat is not just longsword on foot. Sure. No, of course not. Um, so so that, that's what I mean by Fury as a, as a complete picture of the art of arms. It's, it's everything that basically all branches of knightly combat are covered by this one coherent artistic vision, as opposed to um, there being a deep dive on longsword and then a whole separate section on dagger, which is not explicitly connected. Whereas, for example, Fiore will say, and this thing where you're wrapping up somebody's arm is just like the, for instance, the third play of the first master of the dagger. So he explicitly connects all his sections together. So you can see how, for example, the spear is related to the longsword, is related to the dagger, is related to wrestling, is related to Lance on horseback. Sure. I think that in the case of Quincisfectin, um, as I understand it, mm-hmm. there is to some degree, um, I mean, obviously I don't think that there's the connection that you're talking about. I don't think that's the way that they organized it. But I don't think that it means that they're disjointed because okay. if you look at, um, for instance, Jess and I were training, um, there came this sort of question of what a tsukin is. Um, and Can you just spell when, that first? Yeah, Z-U-C-K-E-N, tsukin. Um, so the tsukin, um, what's a tsuk? What, do you, what does that mean? Pulling, right? Well, the way it's often been shown and taught is um, exactly the same thing as abnamen which is that when you come into, say, a Zornhau against your opponent and, and you have a bind, the opponent is strong in the bind, very strong in the bind, making a strong parry. So you pull your sword back up over your head and back down on the same line or even on, on the opposite line. And what you have done is essentially cut around, right? Yep. Um, well, a lot of people taught that and called it tsuken. Um, and it's not. It just isn't. Tsuken is a pulling where you're literally pulling your point back. It's a retraction of the point. Um, and when you retract your point, you are then um, you are then able to thrust in on, a, on another opening. Well, okay. you know that if you look at what a Tsuken is in Harness Fechten and in, um, in Spear. Because in Spear and Harness Fechten, it very explicitly tells you that it's a retraction of the point. Um, so there's no confusion about what it is, but the way that it's written, I think in pseudo Danzig, um, or no, maybe it's in ring. I'd have to go back and look, I'm sorry. But, um, in, in one of the early, the ones that we had the earliest translation for, it was, um, it was not clear what it meant in the description. And so people carried forward with this misunderstanding that it's the same thing as abnamen and it's just, it's just not. And so I think that the fact that the same words are used for same actions in Spear and in Harness Fechten suggests that they're um, part of a coherent art and a coherent understanding. And again, it's something you have to tease out. It's not something I think that, um, that is as clearly laid out as Fiori. Though, again, um, I have a lot of work to do on my knowledge of, of Rolstechten and um, some of the other uh, aspects of, of KDF in general. Right now, Unarmored Longsword is pretty much what I feel competent in. Um, and so I would have to uh, go back and look, and maybe there are those connections, and I just don't know of them, and, and they may not be there. So, 
<laughs> okay, welcome to the joys of a historical martial art where you can actually like do some research and contribute to the general sum of knowledge. Yeah. That's actually one of the things I like best about historical martial arts is that, you know, in most established martial arts, you show up and you train and 30 years later you're teaching and 50 years later you, I don't know, retire or die or whatever. And the art is the same as it was when you started pretty much. Whereas, you know, it's, is it? Well, it's, it's unusual for us, for a, put it this way, it's unusual for a single practitioner to materially contribute understanding to an existing art without going off and creating a whole new separate art. Sure. I think yeah. so, what interests me though, is that I, I found on Amazon, some guy had translated a bunch of historical Japanese martial arts treatises cool. ranging from the, I think the 17th or 18th centuries up to the 20th mm-hmm. century, early 20th century. Yeah. Um, and he has one on Itoryu, the one cut school. And mm-hmm. He has like three different treatises translated of that school where you can actually see the understanding of the art change over time. The terminology slightly change over time. The course seems to be similar. And obviously it's not necessarily a manual in the way we might understand it, but it is nonetheless a change over time and how the artist practice, which you might expect oh, yeah. in changing circumstances. Now you can say, okay, well, when you start training a martial art, you're passing on what was passed on to you. But I think there's a process of, of for sort of forgetting and remembering where some people tend to remember some aspects of the art more strongly and some other people tend to understand other aspects of the art more strongly. And you see this too in Aikido where there's like a bunch of different Aikido schools now based on what the particular students of uh, Ueshiba um, understood best or liked best or or, or we're most oh, focused on. Yeah. You have, you have styles develop, but your average Aikido student starting now is unlikely to materially affect the way, you know, Aikido is practiced 10 years from now in the way that a beginner starting historical swordsmanship now can start working with the sources and maybe start working with a source no one has really looked at yet and materially contribute to our general knowledge of how sourcemanship works that way. Sure, I totally I agree. I don't think much of that happening in, in established martial arts, which means they're much easier to start and they're much easier to learn because you have a teacher who had a teacher who had a teacher. And yeah, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, I love all of these martial arts. You know, I've, I've done probably almost as many as you have. Um, and I've liked pretty much all of them. But the, the opportunity for a relative beginner to make a material contribution. I think that's really attractive in historical. Yeah. And I think in HEMA, the, the sort of the part of historical fencing that I like as well is this, um, like, I mean, well, I think it appeals to those of us who, who come from backgrounds that are are more uh, academically inclined or more, um, Mm -hmm. I guess, giant nerds or something. I mean, I have an undergraduate degree in medieval history. And so the, well, I mean, it does it, I don't know, but it's, it's one of those things where, um, where I find that the part of me that loves history and research mm-hmm. and is very gratified by research. I mean, my favorite part of being a novelist is getting to do research, like to, to prep a new fantasy world by drawing on our actual world. Right. 
So that's my favorite part. Like I like writing, but man, the research is fantastic. And so when, when we do HEMA, the ability to go and do research and to learn more about the subject and to draw connections to other places, I think is really exciting. And I think what, what I took away from Jess that was just really um, invigorating in terms of, of how I want to approach the art is, mm-hmm. is just how far off the deep end she has plunged. I mean, girl, it's crazy. Like she just, like, <laughs> right? Like, like she, she like hand stitches the clothes. She, um, she does like she reads all the books on how they thought about the world and yeah. what what other things they were doing. And I mean, just like totally crazy in a great in a way that I love and admire. Um, but also. Yeah, crazy, legit crazy. And I mean, like, you heard me talking about, about birds, like, also crazy. So I think we made a great match when I was trading with her because we were just like two different kinds of total, total nut jobs. And so um, that helped. Um, but I think that deep dive that she has taken into, hey, what are these other, what are these words used for in other contexts? How might they have understood these words? And what does that tell us about what they might have meant for the art? I thought that was just an incredible sort of mental awakening because like, yeah, okay. Doing etymology is not a new thing, but for her to bring in all of the hunting terminology and to realize too, the way that people learned in the medieval period, the fact that hunting was seen as training for war. I mean, if you go back to um, certain manuscripts on hunting, you have, um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with a charging boar? Right that tells you something about how you fight with a spear on foot and on horseback. And so I think, I think it's, um, it's a really incredible contribution that she's made. And then for me, I was like, well, I can play this forward with falconry. No problem. Like I know falconry really well. I know birds of prey really well. I know this fighter piloting stuff really well. And so when I looked at how that applied to the art, it has sort of really informed my understanding of the art, the way that, a bird goes after its prey and the way that you go after somebody with a long sword to me, you're the same thing. Yes. Um, that makes perfect sense to me at least. I mean, uh, I, I do have a question for you that, that uh, it just struck me when I was reading stealing thunder, mm. that you have descriptions of the weapons. Yes. And you clearly, you clearly like blades. Yeah. Like you really like blades. So you are very much one of us. Um, but there isn't actually a sword fight anywhere in the whole book. There's a, there's a lovely wrestling moment, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to give any spoilers for as a <laughs> wrestling moment. Uh, just, yes, that was great. But no sword fights. I actually, I don't particularly care for sword fights in books, generally speaking. So it's not like I missed it, but I was just curious. Why, why is there why no sword fight in the book? Yeah. Well, um, there, there are uh, dog fights instead. <laughs> but, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, you get the fighter pilot stuff in there. I mean, I, I guess the reason there's no sword fights in the book is the um, the main character is uh, smart enough not to put herself in positions where her life depends on a sword fight, right? Because, like, she knows that there's other people who have done it more than she has and who have practiced longer and harder than she has, and that's their bread and butter. And so she's like, I'm not going to put myself in a position where that's the deciding factor. Um, now there are more many more um, fighting scenes in book two, um, including a couple of sword fights, though they're not really swords because the main character uses katars. 
Yeah. Um, which I think are like the most brilliant weapon ever devised. Oh my god. Gorgeous. Just describe them for listeners who might. Oh sure. So a Qatar is a um, it's a punch dagger uh, from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, we think probably South India is where they originated, but it's not clear. And they have a handle that's shaped like a capital letter H. So you grip the midsection of the capital letter H and these langets come down your wrist. And then from your knuckles sort of protrudes this um, dagger blade, which can be anywhere from six inches long to 18 inches long. I mean, these things are practically short swords, um, it, you know, and you can use two of them and uh, they use the power of a punch. And I think like to me, and, and I'm just going to talk about the beauty of Qataris for a second here, because why not? Uh, I know it's not historical European stuff, but whatever. I, There's okay. all these debates. Just hold you for one second there. I am very explicit in that I'm interested in historical martial arts. The European thing to me is just a distraction. Because sure, there's okay. from everywhere. So you 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 go into into Qatar's and yeah, you know, go into Qatar's. So go, go there's this it. debate. What's the first debate? I tell you, like we're gonna we're gonna fight with knives. What's the first debate? You asking me the question? Yeah. There is no debate. I wouldn't fight with knives. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, so well <laughs> great, great. No problem. We don't have to fight with knives, but like if you're training with a knife. What's the first question a student might ask about what you do with the knife? Uh, how do you not get cut? Well, okay, sure. But what about like, how do you grip it? Oh, okay. Well, to me, that's sword, kind of... Sword grip or ice pick, right? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and there, there are lots of variations you can you can play around with, sure, with a regular Sure, I mean, grip. like if you've got a rondel dagger, you know, obviously they usually show it in this ice pick grip, right? But plenty of people fight with knives in sort of a forward-facing grip and in a sort of saber grip or a sword yeah. grip, right? Yeah. Well, which is better? Neither. Right. Well, which do you use in what context? Um, that's a good question, actually. What's <laughs> like, like, what, what I want to do? I mean, in a knife fight, I would I would hold it like a I would hold it in a forward facing grip because I'm just okay. I'm just more of a kind of slasher than I am a stabber. I think. Okay, and what's the disadvantage of holding it in that forward-facing grip? Mm, you can't thrust quite as hard. Okay, and um, and what's the disadvantage of holding it in an ice pick grip? It's shorter. Yeah, and? And you can't really cut so well. Yeah, so you've got this position where if you hold it in an ice pick grip, mm-hmm. you can stab somebody really hard. Yeah. Um, but your movements tend to be pretty telegraphed. You, your wrist doesn't really bend in that direction, so you can't really make good cuts with it. Um, and you are limited in your flexibility and what angles you can come at. Whereas if you hold it in a, in a saber grip or a forward-facing grip or whatever you want to call it, you can certainly cut better. You can't thrust as well. It's not as strong in the thrust. You, you run a risk when you, when you thrust with it of, of having your hands run down the, the blade itself. Um, and uh, But yeah. Yeah, well, sure. So, so, so you end up in a position where, where you're making some kind of compromise, right, uh, between a, a grip that's more flexible and a grip that is harder hitting. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it? Do you think that in all the dagger fighting treatises, we see them holding them in this ice pick grip? Yeah, I think that's because how people armed that way would tend to attack each other in that mm. period. Yeah, well, we do see both. I mean, Fury has shows us very clearly both. The eighth oh, okay, and ninth sure. of the dagger are 
are both defending against a, a basically an underhand stab in a what you call a forward facing grip. So holding like a regular knife. Okay, interesting. Okay, cool. So, so we see some of that, right? Qatar's you don't have to make that choice. The choice is made. It comes out of your knuckles, right? Well, yeah. the great thing about it is it hits harder than any other grip. And yeah. you can move in every angle that you could move in with a forward-facing grip and far yeah. more angles than you could move in with a reverse mm-hmm. grip or with a, um, an ice pick grip. And you can, at the same time, um, also uh, cut with it just as well as if you were using a forward-facing grip and parry with it just as well if, as if you were using a forward-facing grip. I so it has, all, of, I it really has all the advantages of a ice pick grip and all the advantages of this forward facing grip and none of the disadvantages of either. And it's a stronger grip than the forward facing grip. Um, you have a much more secure hold on your hand and the langets that run down the side of your wrists on your forearm mean that if you're slightly off and you're parrying with this somewhat short blade, you're not getting your arm cut off because they can go down, you know, as much as six inches down from your wrist. Um, mm. And so you end up with a position where you're locked in and comfortable still extremely flexible because you have all of your elbow rotation and shoulder rotation from which to move it. And, 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 and also some wrist rotation as well. And so you end up with um, an, a weapon that is sort of the best of both worlds when it comes to a, um, uh, a knife or a dagger for a, as a fighting weapon. And then you get to, um, you get to box with it. How great is that? Right? Like, <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So you get two of them. And like, I'm sorry, but like if I had two, say like foot long or 18 inch guitars, I would I would take those against a long I would take those against anything. I mean, like, all you have to do is get one okay. strong bind and then punch Alina, the in the face. Alina, Alina, let's do it. Next time I'm sure. in Madison and I go to Madison well, well, when we don't have the coronavirus charging about, I go to Madison usually once or twice a year. See my friend yes. Heidi, and yes, you and let's me. do it. Oh, I mean, long let's do it. Let's see I, I, I actually talked to Lancet Emporium about oh. making me um, because um, one of the makers there he also loves guitars, and um, I said, "Can we have um, fencing guitars?" And he's like, "Well, Why it's not? incredibly difficult to make them safe <laughs> because you're hitting harder than you would hit with any other dagger." Um, and so getting a flexi blade that withstands the sort of punching of a Qatar, um, without injuring your opponent is difficult without breaking the blade is difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think probably, yeah, I could get like an 18 inch, like rapier parrying dagger blade and made it to a handle and make some, um, some Qatar trainer. Uh, Okay. I I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that we try and kill each other. So, you know, any, any, any Qatars will do. And, you know, I play with sharps, so you you use whatever you like. Well, I do have, uh, I do have an original, um, Muhal Qatar, um, sitting on the bookshelf behind me, um, that I I used to, I I used on YouTube to punch a pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because like I just, uh, uh, I was challenged, um, to participate in that, um, in that sort of deed of alms that was happening the other month. And, um, and, uh, so I did, and, uh, that was one of my entries into it was, was, you know, you have to do some cutting practice. And I thought, well, why don't I just punch something with a guitar instead? That would be fun. Um, and granted it was a very ripe pineapple, but I could not believe how little resistance there was when I punched that thing. It was like, I thought I had missed. I was convinced that I had missed. And then suddenly I had a pineapple hanging off the end of my fist. 
And I was like, oh, I didn't miss. I just went straight through the entire thing and rammed the guard of the guitar into it <laughs> without yeah. even well, realizing that I'd done it. It's a perfect mechanical extension of the bones of the forearm. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Basically what we're trying to do with a longsword all the time. And it's, it's got a diamond cross forearm. section. Right. Like the tip of it has a reinforced diamond cross section for punching through mail. That's what it's right. for. And it actually resembles sort of um, some of the uh, long bodkin points that you see in, um, in longbow arrows, which are brilliant for punching through mail as well. So like, it's just, um, it's just incredible at, at punching through things. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what it's designed for. So, so yes, those make an appearance in the books. Um, those are incredible. I think they're some of the coolest, most underrated weapons. And there are versions that most people don't see that have, they're called hooded katars. And they have these fancy like clamshell style yeah. guards over the back of the knuckles. So There's one it, in the it, Wallace collection that has a blade about three feet long on it. Oh, fantastic. It's right. amazing. Well, we know about the pata, the, 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 the pata, but which is a, um, it's a, it's a gauntlet sword, they call it. Um, and it, okay. it has Maybe a blade about three feet long here. and it's a full gauntlet. Um, but a katar is usually not a full gauntlet over the hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's quite a bit smaller. Um, but there's similar principle, um, but I think that what what the advantage of of, of a katar over a, like a, a pata is is the um, the katar is in its being shorter and more maneuverable. It lets it, it makes it harder for you to get tied up in a position that's um, mechanically disadvantageous. Yeah, yeah. Like if you get in a bad bind with any sword, and it's attached to your whole arm you are then in a really bad place, right? Um, whereas with a shorter sword, it's very difficult for you to get in a position where the opponent has the kind of leverage advantage by being on the weak that you get in longsword. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that was an excellent answer to my question. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have I have a couple of um, questions that I, I tend to finish up with because we're running sort of fairly close to time. Oh, sure. Which- which is, um, what is the best idea you've never acted on? The best idea I've never acted on. It doesn't sound like there are very many because you seem to have acted on quite a lot of ideas. But Well, it's one that I'm training for right now. Okay, what's that? Well, so there's, um, have you heard of e-bikes? E-bikes. You mean like yeah. electric bicycles? Yeah. yeah, yeah, electric bicycles, right? Now we have bicycle engines or bicycle motors, these electric motors, yep. that can produce 400% of your pedaling power and that are designed in such a way that the harder you pedal, the harder they work. Right. Well, it occurs to me that you could create a human electric hybrid aircraft. Um, <gasps> so oh my, my goal God. is to train to have a pedal plane because like there have been pedal aircraft. Sure. The best one was Icarus, uh, or sorry, Daedalus, MIT Daedalus from I think 1988. And it went 71 miles over the ocean um, wow. from Heraklion on Crete all the way to the Island of Santorini. And, um, the guy was a Greek Olympic cyclist, right? So obviously no mere mortal can um, can go 71 miles in this plane. But it occurred to me like, well, if you're not doing all or even most of the work, if you're doing like 10 to 20% of the work and the electric motor is picking up the slack, you could actually make a more robust, faster airframe and still have a normal mortal pedal it. And so what I'm trying to do is, is an electric human hybrid aircraft. And I, I have a long way to go. So I'm working on my cycling skills okay. and then I'll have to figure out how to fund it. Uh, maybe I'll just Kickstarter it. I don't know. Um, but I feel like 
it would be such a cool sport to be able to do something that's like part glider, part electric aircraft, part pedal aircraft, so that your fitness makes a, a difference in it. But, yeah. um, but like, it's still something that is not, you know, um, flimsy, uh, the way that Daedalus was too flimsy. Um, so for like, for like actual flying. So that's what, that's the best idea that I've never acted on, but I'm kind of moving towards. I, I, okay. Just something you, you probably don't know. Um, I've had so far two flying lessons in very light aircraft Wonderful. and both of them are in like my top 10 life experiences of all time, including like my children being born. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah. So I have, I have a pilot's license. So, um, and I'm going to work on my glider rating. Uh, so I want to have something that's basically like a sailplane that you yeah. can pedal. Just, just please don't have it ready for another seven years. Why? Because my younger child in seven years time will be a legal adult. And so if, her father kills himself doing something stupid in a light aircraft. <laughs> it isn't I mean, quite so bad. So I'm gonna, you know, I know we're close to time or whatever. You can cut this, but like no, for no. me, the one kind of flight that we've never mastered as humans is the kind of flight that most inspires us, which is the flight at low altitude and low speed, the way that birds fly. And right. we haven't managed okay. it. We can't do it because we're heavy, which means that our stall speed has to be high, which yeah. means that. We have to go a certain speed, uh, you know, say between 15 and 40 miles an hour not to fall out of the sky. Um, and so because of those limitations, we can't do the kinds of flights that I think are most exciting, which is going low over things, which is going and seeing um, your local area from the air the way that a bird does, which is exploring, you know, thermaling, that kind of thing. Um, the closest we can do for that is hang gliders and gliders and ultralight aircraft. Um but even those things, um, there's this there's this difference with ultralight aircraft where you have this big gas motor on the end of it. It's not very good for the environment. It's um, it's very loud. But like a pedal powered aircraft, where you are actually connected to the machine physically in a way that you're producing the energy to do it, I think people would go nuts for that. I don't know. Just I, maybe I'm just. I would certainly go nuts for that. Yeah. Um, yes. I. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Would you please act on that idea straight away? I'm, I am. I am working super hard at it. Um, so Excellent. I'm working on my fitness, and I'm going to get a glider rating so that because I think having it be a hybrid that's also a glider means that you don't always have to have the engine running. You can thermal. You can, and which allows you to go longer distances, and then you can pedal between thermals. So right. I'm definitely working on it. It's just um, going to probably cost a hundred thousand dollars that I don't have to spend on a on a pedal plane right now. But um, who knows? Maybe I'll Kickstarter it, and people will be happy to donate a hundred thousand dollars to me to do um, this. Just, just a thought. Combine it with paintball. Yes. No, there's no question that there's going to be dogfighting. I mean, that's the <laughs> ultimate goal. I don't, I don't yeah. think there was any doubt. It. I mean, like, so I just biked 60 miles yesterday as part of my training for this. Um, so okay, you're I've pretty been, serious. All right. I'm, I'm pretty serious. Also, um, I have friends who are kind of good with computers. And one of the things I've always wanted ever since I was a kid and that now I'm going to make is I'm going to get one of those really cool bicycle trainers where you can put your bike on the trainer for winter, you know, and pedal it inside. Mm -hmm. Um, well, they have ones now that are set up in such a way that they send enough information to a system that there's an app called Zwift where you can actually race other people in virtual bike races by using this thing. Okay. Um, and based on the terrain in Zwift, it will actually make it harder or easier for you to pedal. 
Um, and so it actually allows you to do these bike races. Well, I'm going to have them set up an IO controller for it so that I can use it as the throttle for flight simulators. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then you can actually use flight simulators to explore the performance envelopes of these kinds of things. Oh, that is super clever. Yeah, I'm kind of crazy. Wow. Um, oh, no, that's very exciting. Okay. Well, actually, my last question, I think I already know. Um, it, <laughs> it, technically, it, your answer, that answer wouldn't quite count because of the phrasing of the question. But somebody gives you a million dollars to spend um, sort of improving historical martial arts. And for mm. our purposes, let's say that, seeing as it's at least 100 years old, we can call like dogfighting in airplanes a historical martial art. How would you spend that money? How would I spend a million dollars to improve historical martial arts? Yeah. Um, I think that if I had a million dollars to spend on historical martial arts, uh, I would definitely spend it not on dogfighting because the U.S. military pumps enough money into that. Um, okay. There's no question that that martial art is well-funded. Every military on the planet is still doing yeah, it. It's, yeah, okay. a, um, it's a living art. I yeah. would say that I would spend, uh, I mean, if I had to spend it, you know, given social inequalities today, I might feel not great about spending that much money on a historical martial art in spite of my desire to spend an insane amount of money on a pedal plane. But anyway, but that is at least good for the environment. I don't know. Anyway, but if I were going to spend a million dollars on historical martial arts, I think what I would do is um, create a series of scholarships for um, teachers uh, so that they can basically get a grant to teach exclusively and, and research and not do anything else. Um, and dedicate their time to doing this art that they love and practicing it. And some people get that, you know, luxury, as it were, because they're married to somebody rich or somebody who makes a better living, or they're able to um, to do it because they make enough of a living at it that it that it pays the bills. Yeah, but I me. think that, yeah, sure, right. And, and but that's um, that's uncommon. And um, I think too, even you probably would benefit to some degree from having a little bit of the pressure taken off of something like a grant <laughs> oh, that yes. would that would say that would say like, okay, you know how you're always doing all of these things and scrambling to make enough money. Well, here's money for a few years to just do the kind of research that you want to do and do the kind of teaching that you want to do. And I would just tie it to like seminar obligations or something, and there would be an event where the people who had these grants would come and teach and show what they had developed over that course of time. Now, it may sound a little bit self-serving, but I think that's a brilliant way of spending the money. <laughs> sure. So once I get my million dollars, I will, I will let you know. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I think that's really, I think the art, honestly, is one that um, benefits from more people having, having access to it, having the time to think about it. Um, Absolutely. As a novelist, I think one of the things that I'm always conscious of is that it's a very privileged occupation. Because in order to become a novelist, you have to have been a failed novelist for like a decade, right? You have to have written so many books people didn't want and didn't pay for. Well, that means that you had to have a certain amount of free time to be able to do those things, right? Awesome. And I think that HEMA is the same way. In order to really make a contribution to the art, you have to have a certain amount of free time. You have to have a certain amount of time that you're actually devoting to thinking about this rather than basic necessities. Um, and I think that that means that a system where we could provide grants or something like that would open up the ability to learn and to teach to, to segments of the population that might not otherwise be able to afford it. Yes. I guess a brilliant idea because yes, we could, um, yeah, I was lucky 
in that, you know, I, I've never had to worry about starving because even if my school had totally failed, you know, my parents wouldn't have let me starve. And if my parents weren't around, my brother and sister wouldn't have let me starve. And in worst case scenario, I live in a country where the healthcare is free and there's no such thing as, well, there is health insurance, but nobody needs it. That just gets you a better quality room. Um, and so I was able to just risk it. And then enough students yeah. showed up that I could pay the bills pretty much from day one. Right, so that's, it's almost like- that's lucky on all sorts of on all sorts of levels. There are a lot of people who I think could do amazing work, but they can't take the risk because they don't have that kind of um, support network. Right, and social safety net. And I think too, one thing that would be nice for Hema um, uh, would be also, or well, not just Hema, but all historical martial arts um, would be to include in this not just people researching and teaching the art itself. But people researching um, and developing safety equipment, uh, training equipment, uh, yep. because I mean, you know, we're, we don't have time to talk about it. I, I had a really bad concussion uh, the last day I was training with Jess. I mean, and it was awful. Um, so the fact that we have a sport now that's developed in such a way that that's a really common problem, yep. um, where it isn't in sport fencing for various reasons uh, to the same degree. Yep. I think that um, researching better safety equipment is really important. Yes. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Okay. Um, yes, we are sort of at time. So thank you very much for talking to me today, Alina. It's been a fascinating conversation. It went in directions that I could not possibly have predicted, which is always fun. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Well, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate uh, getting the chance to be on and to talk with you about um, all the things that I really love. So thanks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Alina Boyden. And remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. Now, tune in next week when I'm talking to Kirk Williams, also known as the Knight of Green, about his reconstructing sword fights from video games, which is a fascinating conversation. So subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, and I will see you next week.